Well, we're going to be in Galatians. We've continued to work through the book of Galatians over the last couple months. We're kind of getting towards the end, towards the home stretch. And uh, it's Galatians chapter 4. We're in chapter 4 now. Uh, verse 21 through verse 31. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew there for you, and I think it's on page 825. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers, so you can follow along with us as we work verse by verse through the Scripture. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This portion of Galatians is the most difficult part of Galatians to understand. It's really, really difficult. And so uh, I'm going to try to provide you with a little bit of a map as we start to work our way through that. And so the the first thing that we're going to see is that Paul actually speaks of the same event in three different ways. He does it historically first, then figuratively, and then personally. So historically, figuratively, and then personally is how he's going to talk about this particular event. And so in order to help you out, if you're following along, if you're taking notes, uh, you can take, uh, you can make like two columns, right? And at the top of the first column, you can write the name Hagar. H-A-G-A-R. And then on the second column, you can write the name Sarah. So Hagar and Sarah are our column titles. Under Hagar, you could write Ishmael, slave, birth by flesh, covenant based on law, earthly Jerusalem, and Judaizers. Ishmael, slave, birth by flesh, covenant based on law, earthly Jerusalem, and Judaizers. And under Sarah, you might write, Isaac, free, birth by promise, covenant based on promise, heavenly Jerusalem, Christians. Isaac, free, birth by promise, covenant based by promise, on promise, heavenly Jerusalem, and Christians. Now, if you got those down, that's going to serve to help you see. Paul's going to have a contrast that bleeds through all three sections. He's going to be contrasting these characters, Sarah and Hagar. So we're going to see it from a historical perspective, from a figurative perspective, and then lastly, from a personal perspective. Paul's going to ask three questions. In the historical section, he's going to ask you this one. Who is your mother? In the figurative section, he's going to ask you, where is your citizenship? And in the personal section, he's going to ask, what is your status? And all these questions are going to kind of aim at the same main point, the same answer, Um, And the point that he's trying to make is that followers of Jesus are children of the free. And they're born according to the promise of God. Followers of Jesus are free and born according to the promise. So in order to understand these properly, I'm going to have to summarize for you the event that all of this is based on. Way back in Genesis, the 15th chapter, it's chapters 15 through chapter 21. Um, We've been there before just a little bit. We touched on some of the high points of Abraham's life is where this event takes place. Paul's referring again to the life of Abraham and some things that happened there because, as we've discussed previously, Abraham is important. Now, your homework this week is going to be to read chapters 15 through 21 of Genesis, all right? It'll help you get all of this. But for now, I'm going to help you cheat just a little bit, all right? I'm going to, I'm going to just give you the important information so that we can follow Paul here. So Abraham and God, they have a conversation in Genesis 15, and Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness, right? And that's kind of the whole point of Galatians, is that salvation is by grace through faith, based on no effort in and of ourselves. 
Remember, God has that covenant with Abraham, and when both parties are supposed to walk through the animal halves, cutting a deal, uh, it's to say that if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may me be killed, may me be like one of these animals. And, and then right as they're supposed to walk through, uh, Abraham just happens to fall asleep, and only God passes between the animal pieces, and it's this statement that God is the great covenant keeper, that he upholds his promises. And the very next chapter, in chapter 16, we skipped over this last time we did the life of Abraham, all right? Uh, Abraham is waiting around. He's been told that he is going to be blessed with a child, the child of promise that is to come. And that that child is going to be a blessing to all people everywhere, to all nations. That through him, Abraham will be a blessing to the world. But here in chapter 16, Abraham, is, you know, a few years have gone by. And him and his wife, Sarah, are just kind of hanging out one day, I suppose. I don't know what that looked like. Um, maybe probably just watching uh, like Duck Dynasty, something like that on the TV, uh, hanging out. And, and Sarah says to Abraham, you know what? Like, we still don't have any kids, and we're getting pretty old. And so she says, you know, I have this slave, uh, Hagar. She's from Egypt. She's young. Uh, she's fertile. Why don't you have a child with her so that we can pass our inheritance to someone? So Abraham does this. He, he marries Hagar, and he conceives a child with her, and she gives birth to him. And that child's name is Ishmael. Well, you know, a few more years goes by, and in Genesis 17, God is uh, talking with Abraham again, and he reminds Abraham of this promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to all the nations, to all the people of the world, and I'm going to do it through your wife, Sarah. Abraham says to God, quote, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And what he's asking God there is he's saying, look, like Sarah, it's clear that she's barren. It's been a whole lot of years, right? She's old, I'm old. Uh, let's just use the kid that I already have. And God answers him. He basically says, no, I'm going to bless you through Sarah. And that kind of brings us where we're at right now um, in verses 21 through 23. Let me read to you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? All right, this verse is just kind of set up. He's been talking about the law, and the Galatians are trying to get with those false teachers, those Judaizers that are saying, you need something more than Jesus to have salvation, to have peace with God. You need to have Jesus plus keep the Mosaic Covenant, plus do all these good things in order to have salvation. And Paul has repetitively said, no, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he's kind of pointing out how silly the Galatians are. Like He's basically saying, if you knew what the law was, you would not want to be under it. And then he launches into this historical account with verse 22 when he's speaking of the things we just summarized. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, that's Ishmael, what we talked about, and one by a free woman. So God tells Abraham that he's going to be blessed by Sarah. Well, wouldn't you know it, later on in chapter 21, uh, Sarah, when she's 90 years old, and Abraham, he's 100 years old, conceives a child. How that happens again, I don't know. Maybe they put on some Barry Manilow, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, uh, she is with child. But either way, you have Isaac comes into the world. And he's actually, when God tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to conceive uh, later on, like they laugh. They laugh at God. And so there's a little bit of irony. They name the child Isaac, which in Hebrew means child of laughter. And so you have Isaac, which we just read. He is the one of the free woman. So now in verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born 
through promise. Notice here that Paul doesn't mention Hagar or Sarah by name. I told you who they were, um, but he's going to point out, it's clear who he's talking about uh, as we go through the text. But he doesn't name them for a very specific purpose. He wants to highlight their status. One is free, and the other is a slave. One child is born according to the flesh, and the other child is born according to the promise. You see, the birth of Ishmael happened when Sarah and Abraham are sitting around and they're going, God made us this promise. You know what they decide to do is, we have to go and get this promise. We have to get it. We have to have somebody to pass our inheritance on. We have to become a blessing to the world. Let's figure out a solution to our problem. And so they put their heads together and by human effort, by ordinary effort, they have a kid. It's biological, not, not anything extraordinary. It's just the birth of a life. It's, it's Ishmael. Which is, you know, that's extraordinary. Birth is extraordinary. I just, my wife just had a baby. It was awesome. Um, but it wasn't through the promise. It was according to the flesh. Something that they could do apart from God. And so this is actually a signal of a lack of faith on their part. Because they rely on their own effort to try and take hold of this promise of God. Do you sometimes do this in your own faith? God is promised us eternal life with Jesus Christ. That our meaning would be found solely in following Jesus, in worshiping Him. Right? That's what we were created to do, was to worship. And God is going to be most glorified in us through our worship when we are most satisfied in Him. And so it's in worshiping God and following Jesus that we obtain the promise. Do we sometimes divert from that? Divert from that complete trust in Christ to earn our good favor, to make us lovable to God, and try to get after the promise in our own way, to try and find meaning in our own lives apart from God, to try and become a better version of ourselves so that we might be acceptable, and try to do good things. I think it looks a little bit different in in different people's lives. Like for some of us, it might be uh, coming to church each and every week and waking up and reading our Bible at a specific time and doing all the right things. But that's that's not what God wants. That's not what he's after. He's after our hearts. Now, let me give a caveat and say this and hear me. Discipline is not legalism. Spiritual discipline is not legalism. In fact, it's smart. Like, is it smart to wake up and make some time to read your Bible and spend with the God of the universe before you get going on with your day? Yeah, that's pretty wise. Does your salvation depend on that? Absolutely not. Is it wise to gather together here with a body of believers and to worship our God, to learn about Him, that we might fall more intimately in love with Him? Absolutely. Is it necessary for your salvation to be here each and every week? No. Only Jesus is necessary. By grace through faith, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Or maybe for for some of us, it's we always think, I, I think I'm guilty of this one. You know, I haven't quite arrived yet, but one day I'm going to be a better version of myself, and then I'm going to have it. I'm going to have my things together. I'm going to be. I'm going to start getting up and, and working out. I'm going to be like ripped and have six pack abs, and uh, you know, I'm going to go to work every day, all day. I'm going to come home. I'm going to love my wife well. I'm going to read my Bible for 23 of the 24 hours of my day, and just man, I'm going to be just have everything together. 
that better version of myself still falls short. Still is not acceptable to God. The better version of yourself is, I mean, it's, it's Brussels sprouts. You all know how much I don't like Brussels sprouts. It's, it's like the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's not good enough. It's just not good at all before a holy God. Because here's the thing. We often think in terms of scales, like if I do enough to make myself better, if I follow enough of these, uh, these practices, then eventually I'll be acceptable or lovable to God. I'll be saved. I can grab hold of that promise. But here's the rub. There are no scales. There's no scales. You're either justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, or you're unjustified and separated from God because of your sin, because of your imperfection. Salvation, life, is found only in Jesus. And it comes only by promise, not according to the flesh, not according to your ordinary effort. No, it takes the extraordinary effort of a God working a miraculous miracle within your heart. It takes God stepping in. He doesn't need you to fulfill His own promises. He'll do that. You need only trust, only receive. We see Abraham uh, taking matters into his own hands. He kind of places his faith in himself at this point rather than God. And the result is he has a jealous wife, ultimately. Uh, he has sons that are at war with, uh, with each other forever and has a failed attempt to get the promise. The result is brokenness in his life. Now, Abraham is held up as a great example of faith. And yes, we can follow his example of faith. And eventually, uh, Isaac, who is the child of promise, is a blessing to the world through Jesus Christ. But Abraham, again, is not perfect. And so this, this is the part where we can look at one of his failures and go, that wasn't such a good idea. And that's not something to be emulated. Dear ones, let me ask you, where is your faith? Is it in that place and where, where Abraham is in Genesis 15 and it's credited to him as righteousness? Or have you taken matters into your own hands and started to work out your salvation according to the flesh rather than the spirit? Paul's question, who is your mother? Hagar? Or Sarah? Those that are children of Hagar will be in slavery to their flesh and to the world. They won't be inside of the promise. Only children of Sarah inherit the gift of God. So we've seen kind of this historical argument from Paul in these first few verses. And now we're going to move on to the figurative part of the argument. Let me start in verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, if you're like me, you read those verses and you were kind of like, what? <laughs> like, Paul, that was really difficult to understand. What are you talking about, Paul? And what Paul's doing here is he's taking Hagar and Sarah, and now he's moving on to talk about two covenants. He has two women, and you have two sons, and two covenants. Two, two, and two. And so Hagar, Sarah, the two women, one represents slavery and the other one 
freedom. One represents life according to the flesh. The other represents life according to the spirit. And what Paul does in the first part is he says, Hagar, she is Mount Sinai. Two covenants. This is the first of the two. It's the covenant that's made at Mount Sinai. And if you remember your your, your Old Testament, that's where uh, the Lord uh, gives the law to Moses. It's where the Israelites go after they get out of Egypt, right? They break free from slavery of the Egyptians and they're delivered and they go to Mount Sinai to worship. Mount Sinai represents freedom from oppression. But here's the thing. Paul is saying that Sinai is like Hagar. That the law that was given there, yes, it reflected the character of God, but it doesn't serve to set the people free in a spiritual sense. Because in a spiritual sense, even though they're free from the reign of the Egyptians, they're still under the law of sin. And the law serves the purpose not to save, but to show us our spiritual oppression, our need for Jesus Christ. That we come to the end of ourselves, that we can't be made acceptable by our own effort. That the law drives us to full dependence on Jesus Christ. The law does not liberate, but reveals our slavery to sin. Then he says this thing about the present Jerusalem. That corresponds to Hagar and to this idea of slavery to sin. The present Jerusalem is the city of fallen men. The heavenly Jerusalem, the one that he points to next, corresponds to freedom in Christ. And it is the city of risen men and risen women. And it's linked to the previous section by Sarah and her barrenness. Sarah cannot conceive a child, but through the promise of God comes Isaac. Likewise, Paul quotes Isaiah 54.1 here. Your Bible probably brought it, indented it a little bit so that you can see he's quoting the Old Testament there. That's in verse 27 where he says, Rejoice, O barren one. The context of Isaiah there is actually pointing to Israel as this metaphorical mother and that all of Israel is scattered in exile. So Israel has become like a mother with no children. She's become like Sarah. She's barren. So Israel is barren just like Sarah was barren. Yet God will bless her by bringing to her a people because her children will be more than the one who has a husband. And that's going to come through Jesus Christ. Those will be the true children of Abraham. You know, I think the gospel is portrayed as beautiful here. Because what Paul's kind of saying is that the gospel is not just for the young, beautiful, fertile Hagars of the world. He's saying that the gospel... The message that salvation is by grace through faith, the good news, is for the old and barren Sarahs. For those of us that know that we cannot do this life on our own. It's for the weak, for the marginalized. Especially for the marginalized. The gospel is for the barren, those that recognize their need. It's Luke 15 all over again. Remember last week we talked about the prodigal sons? And we have the elder brother outside while the younger brother's inside enjoying the feast. It's the same concept. The younger brother recognizes his need. And he repents and he goes to the Father. So too is the call on our lives. Those that would want to live according to the Spirit. You know, there's another parable of sons in Matthew 23. 
And that features a father says to, to his two sons, he says, go and, will you go and work in my vineyard? And the first son says, yeah, I'll go, and, I'll go and work in your vineyard. Or he says, no. The first son says, no, I won't go and work in your vineyard. And then he does it, actually. He ends up doing what the father wants. And the second son says, no. He says, yeah, of course I'll work in the vineyard. But then he doesn't. And Jesus says it's the, sec- it's the first son, not the second, that actually did the will of the father. So the one that said, I'm not going to work in the vineyard, but ended up working in the vineyard, was the one that did the father's will. His point here is that the tax collectors and the sinners, the worst of the worst, were entering the kingdom of God ahead of the Pharisees, the religious, those that live according to the flesh rather than the spirit. Because the wicked recognize their need, they see their sin, and they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They become weak. It was at the right time when we were weak that Christ died for our sins. Friends, we need to know, like tax collectors and sinners, that we are not good. We're not good, and we need help. I think it's also neat here that the gospel shows itself to be inclusive. One of the knocks on Christianity is everybody goes, well, it's so exclusive, it excludes like all these other world religions. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, that's just so, so exclusive. I actually think the gospel shows itself to be inclusive here because it's not just um, for the persons that are from good families and have a good background that comb their hair every morning and brush their teeth and go and do their jobs and do all these good things. It's not just for the morally good, but it's for the morally immoral, those that are bad, those that are not good enough. It's for all that will confess Christ. So, in fact, the gospel is inclusively exclusive. It includes all people that will simply come and change their citizenship from the city of this earth, the present Jerusalem, life according to the flesh, with faith in Christ, with citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem that is yet to be experienced, but is already in the sense that we've experienced Christ in our lives. That that heavenly Jerusalem reaches down into our current circumstance. So that we look forward to that future city where Christ is king. Where is your citizenship? Paul then transitions. We've seen the historical and that was just the figurative. He transitions to this last section where he's going to apply it very personally to the Galatians and to us. Starting with verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. See, the Judaizers would have thought of themselves as the true children of Abraham. They're Jewish after all, right? They would have seen the Galatians as those that were cast out from the presence of God, from the people of God. They would have seen the Galatians as Ishmael's and themselves as Isaac's. 
You can see this in John 3, 9 when uh, the Pharisees come up to John the Baptist and he says, you know, you brood of vipers. And then they, they have a little dialogue. Uh, and he says this, he says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. So they're saying, we're children of Abraham. And John the Baptist is saying, no, you're not. And you have Jesus in John 8. He, uh, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him. That's the Pharisees. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, or that's what they said to him. We were born not of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus responded, if God were your, fa- were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but from him who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says to the Pharisees, your physical lineage might go all the way back to Abraham. But your true father is not Abraham. It's the father of lies. Just as you came out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai received the law, that wasn't your salvation, it revealed your sin. So too, being a child of Abraham doesn't save you. You're not truly saved just by physical lineage. It counts for nothing. No, the true sons of Abraham have a spiritual lineage. They are children of promise. Children of the barren one. Residents of the heavenly city. In other words, Paul is equating the Judaizers, not with Isaac, but with Ishmael. He's saying, you live according to the flesh. You try to obtain salvation according to the flesh, but salvation comes not by works, but by faith according to the promise of God. You are those that are cast out. You are those that are in slavery. It's the Galatians that have become sons out of their slavery, that have been saved. I think another interesting point here is uh, 29. If you notice, he says, uh, He that was born according to the flesh persecuted him that was born according to the Spirit. And Ishmael mocked Isaac. And I think likewise today, oftentimes, where we endure the most persecution is from those that are in the church, that are locked into religion and ritualism. John Stott says it this way. The persecution of the true church, true church is not always by the world who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church. The establishment, the hierarchy. 
Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Christians are often going to experience persecution from our half-brothers because those half-brothers are wholly lost, wholly separated from Christ. See, the religious is the same as the pagan in this respect. Both deny their complete sinfulness and their need for complete reliance upon the grace of God. See, when the religious are told that their deeds are worthless, they get offended, they get worried because their salvation is then on the line. Their self-justification is under attack. But those that rest in Christ know their self-image is not threatened. That it cannot be challenged. That because in Christ they are treated as sons, sons of the free, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, as Isaacs, not as Ishmael's. Christ becomes our self-image when we rest in him. In him we are seen as beauties, given power over death, called into the royal court, soaked in the Father's love, permeated by the Spirit's presence, alive in Christ through faith. Loved ones, stop working for your salvation. This may be hard to see. And I think Martin Luther put it well. He said this, If ever a monk could have attained heaven by his monkery, it was I. But Christ was not given for trivial or imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are absolutely and stubbornly ingrained. Stop relying on your religious monkery, according to the flesh. Your sins are too great. Your good deeds are too little. Rely on Christ. It is time to stop living as Ishmael's. Start living as Isaac's. Children of the promise. Children of the free. Who is your mother? Where is your citizenship? What is your status? Slave or free? Friends in Christ, we have gone from slavery to sin into sonship. Fully loved and fully accepted by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because by placing our faith with him, as Paul has already told us, we are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer us who live, but he who lives in us. In the life we now live, in the flesh, we live by faith. As children, not of the slave, but of the free. I'll give Paul the last word here as we consider these questions and prepare to sing our hymn of response. He says this in a transitional verse in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Live as children of the free.